speaker, Rabbi Dr. David Harlan, who's been biased already. He's from Magitshir of the uh, Siegel Institute. As you know, he gives a shir uh, daily, and he's no stranger. He's been doing this already for two years. It's the third year. Already. Going into the third year, we wish him much success. We have a chazaka already three years. Uh, the topic that he'll speak on is a very interesting one, Antiochus and the persecution of the Jews, a historical perspective. I also want to thank uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. Anita Band, who has sponsored this lovely uh, breakfast share in memory of her husband, Eli Band, the Shemesh Please give a warm round of applause to our guest speaker, Rabbi Dr. David Howard. Okay, thank you very much. title of my sheer lecture is, Why Did Antiochus Only Persecute the Jews? The, I'm focusing on the works of a professor you might have heard of, Elias Bickerman. By the way, 30 years ago, I, I grew up, of course, always hearing Antiochus. I once heard a lecture 30 years ago, and the professor said, Antiochus. What? <laughs> but apparently that's the non-Jewish or even non-from way of pronouncing it, but for this, the Hamish crowd, I'm going to stick with Antiochus. Why did Antiochus only persecute the Jews? You know, in the works of Chazal, the background to the miracle of Hanukkah is told in Mesech Shabbos, Chaval from the days, as we've been studying actually in the morning here, and in the Sefer Megillus Tainus, which records all the miracles that took place at the time of the Second Temple, and which it is subsequently prohibited to fast or give eulogies on those days. And these records of Chazal are duly codified in the Rambam, Tefos Hanukkah, and then the Shulchan Aruch. But in all these places, the generic term Yavonim, the Greeks, or Malchi Yavon is used. No specific figure is mentioned. But if we look at the earliest record of events, in the first and second book of Maccabees, which has come down to us in Greek, we see a different picture. We have a specific king, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, is mentioned. Here is the translation of the first book of Maccabees and the second book of Maccabees. The two books of Maccabees are not part of Tanakh. They are part of the Apocrypha, which were books written during the Second Temple period. They are considered canonical by the Greek and Roman churches, but not according to us. We Jews, of course, reject any holiness to those books, but they certainly can be used as sources of history. What's fascinating is that these two books, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, are in fact very different from each other. 1st Maccabees was written by a historian who wished to praise the Hashmonoyim, the Hasmonean dynasty. Indeed, one can characterize the book as a history of the rise of the dynasty, from the zealous Matis Yahu to his sons, Yochanan, Shimon, Yehuda, Elazar, and Yonasan to the next generation, with a leader, the son of Shimon was Yochanan Hercules, or as they say in those books, John Hercules. The book, like the Gillis Esther, was 
not use any of the names of God, but uses heaven as a substitute. Now, the anonymous author of the first book of Maccabees sets the scene by mentioning the successors of Alexander the Great, who established the Greek dominion over much of the world. These successors who ruled in the Near East and, the book says, were wicked, and the author proceeds to mention Antiochus IV. The author of the fourth authorized Jews to abandon the restrictions of the Torah and to adopt Greek ways, including the Greek educational institution of the gymnasium. And the gymnasium men who did these Greek exercises totally nude, and that was the way to uh, afford and force people to exercise in the nude, and obviously that was a problem for the Jews who were circumcised, so they even had a operation to make it appear that you were not circumcised. In 169 BCE, Antiochus IV marched on Yerushalayim and sacked the temple. Two years later, 167 BCE, an official of his sacked and burned the rest of the city, destroyed the fortifications, slaughtered or enslaved the religious Jews, seized their possessions, and built a citadel called Acre to shelter the community of Jewish sinners whom he placed in power. This already is very interesting, that apparently there were some Jews who were going over to Antiochus' side. We're going to speak more about that presently. Later, Antiochus issued a decree forbidding the Jews to observe the commandments of the Torah, ordered them to violate its prohibitions, and appointed officials to enforce these decrees. Sacrifices to the abomination of the Greeks ensued. On the 15th day of Kislev, there was an order to set up an abomination of desolation in the Beis Hamikdash, and sacrifices to that abomination began 10 days later on the 25th day of Kislev. The Jonathan Goldstein, who translated the Anchor Bible edition of the first and second Maccabees, and wrote learned introductions to both books, from, from which a lot of what I'm saying is coming from, writes the following. After, pray, after paying brief respect to the brave but suicidal efforts of pious Jews to disobey the king's decrees, the author of First Maccabees introduces the aged priest Matisyahu, father of five sons. Matisyahu dared to assert that a king who commanded the violation of the Torah could no longer be ruling the Jews by divine right. Matisyahu justified his act only by his own zeal, compared to that of Pinchas. This is one of the first revolutions in history. Before that, the idea was, if someone is a king, it must be by the grace of God that he is king and he should be king. Matisyahu disputed that. Now, first the royal authorities discovered that to massacre the followers of, from Judaism, the pietists, the Hasidim, who refused to obey the priests, they only had to wait for Shabbos, when the pietists would abstain from every form of self-defense. So the Jews were slaughtered on Shabbos. Matisiel countered that by teaching that self-defense, military self-defense, including the murder of the oppressor, on Shabbos was permitted. 
he won over to his view a large number of these pietists, whom the author names as such. Professor Goldstein, in his interpretation of these passages in the first Maccabees, nicely contrasts the King David-like realism of Matisyahu with the unsuccessful idealism of those who were not fight back on Shabbos and Nebuch just died. Then, Matisyahu and his sons withdrew to the village of Modi'in, and, as I mentioned, he dared to use the sword against Antiochus's agents and against his Jewish collaborators. As we mentioned, he compared himself to Pinchas, and one, he said one should not be meekly slaughtered, but you fight back, you kill your oppressor, even on Shabbos. Now, what's interesting is, Batisyahu saw himself following not just in the legacy of Pinchas, but in the whole tradition of numerous Jewish biblical heroes. We have the record of Matisyahu's farewell address before he would die. He's recorded as mentioning not only Pinchas, but Yoshua and Kale, the two spies who did not deviate from the will of God, as well as figures such as Abraham, David HaMelech, Eliohanavi, and finally, Daniel and the Hananiah Mishal Vazaria, who were miraculously protected by God as a result of them willing to risk their lives to keep the tenets of Judaism. Then, the death of Matisyahu is recorded. And the remainder of 1st Maccabees really bears out the predictions of the dying Matisyahu. Yehuda, relying on divine aid gained through righteousness and prayer, wins a series of military victories and defeats the Seleucids, those Greek successors of Alexander the Great, of whom the king, of course, was Antiochus IV. Yehuda and his men defeat Lysias, whom Antiochus had appointed at Beisur, and they came back, they purified the Beis Hamikdash, and they reestablished the Avoda at the very same time, Chokhei Kislev, of the year where it had been discontinued three years earlier. The Mizbeach was rededicated, and the event was celebrated was to be celebrated every year as Chanukah, the Feast of Dedication or Rededication. First Maccabees goes on past that point, mentioning how Shimon and his sons liberated more territory, recaptured the Acre, that was that citadel that Antiochus IV had built, renewed ties with Rome and with Sparta. That's very interesting. Some of you might have heard this, a commentator, David Frum, he writes, he has like a, a blog on political issues. He, he points out from politically, that was a very fascinating thing that Yehuda HaMakavi did. He set up diplomatic relations with other enemies of Antiochus. The people confirmed upon Shimon and his sons not only the high priesthood, but the political and military leadership of the nation, and the book ends, that is, first Maccabees ends, with a mention of the successful reign of Shimon's son, Yochanan Hermes. <coughs> first Maccabees is a book without overt miracles, but according to first Maccabees, the Hashgacha of Rabboni Shalala, the divine providence, helps the Hashmonoim defeat their enemies, and it is through military victories. Professor Bickerman, Elias Bickerman, whose work we will discuss length shortly, describes 1st Maccabees as follows. This chronicler, that is the 1st Maccabees, was a part of the 
who built their kingdom with blood and iron. He wrote towards the end of the second century BC, around 100 BC. He had seen with his own eyes how every hostile king was crushed. The Greek kingdom had perished through the internecine warfare among its pretenders. Through the guidance of divine providence and the brotherly unity of the Maccabees, the holy people, that is the Jews, were strengthened and able to expand. They had seen with their own eyes how the biblical promises for those loyal to the law, that is to the Torah, had been fulfilled. This enabled the author to view the oppression and suffering of the Jews as a past, as an accident, only a function of when they disobeyed God. And the glorious success of the present, under the rule of Hashmonon King Yochanan Hercules, on the other hand, as hopefully permanent. As generations succeed generation, Matasyon, first Maccabees, tells his sons, follow their example, that is, of studying and following the Torah. For no one who trusts in heaven shall ever lack strength. Akan, first Maccabees. Second Maccabees, however, also part of the Hakufa, is written in an unusual manner. It begins with two letters. The first one was a call to the Jews of Egypt to repent and to observe what he calls the days of tabernacles in the month of Kislev. Now we of course know that Sukkot is in Kodesh Tishrei. So what that means is a whole discussion. I really cannot uh, go into it today. I'll mention one point in a second. The second letter, which some people say is forged, but in any event, is purported to have been written in 164 BCE, and it tells Egyptian Jews as follows. Inasmuch as we are about to celebrate on the 25th of Kislev the purification of the temple, we thought we ought to let you know so that you too might celebrate it as days of tabernacles, as days of tabernacles. It's not Sukkot Mamish. It's like Sukkot. And they say holidays. And days of the fires when the Chemya, the builder of the temple and the altar, brought sacrifices. As I just mentioned, the parallel between Sukkot and Hanukkah is a complicated one, but I will mention one point. The Gemara Masech Shabbos talks about, for lighting Nero's Hanukkah, Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin, those that glorify and beautify the midst of Hanukkah by lighting even more candles. And the view of Beit Shammai, we don't pass them like him, Beit Shammai says, you fulfill the mitzvah Lukas Nero's Hanukkah, to the utmost extent, by decreasing the amount of candles. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And the Gemara proceeds to give a reasons for Beishamai's view. It's analogous to the bulls, the parim, which are brought on sacrifices on Sukkot, where there also is a decrease. 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 70 bulls altogether. So you see... In Beishamai, there is also a comparison between Sukkot and Hanukkah. Let's get back to 2nd Maccabees. 2nd Maccabees continues with a statement that this book is an enrichment of a larger work by someone called Jason of Cyrene. There's no reason to doubt that. As I mentioned, there are many differences between 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. In 2nd Maccabees, there are many more verses devoted to the sufferings of the Jewish martyrs. There is much emphasis on the sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash. The major figure is Yehuda HaMakabi. Matisyo is not even mentioned. Indeed, 
the abridgment begins at the point that because of the merit of an earlier high priest, Onias III, in enforcing the provisions of the Torah, there was miraculous divine interventions, a nace, that prevented Heliodorus, who was a minister of an earlier Seleucid king, King Seleucus IV, from seizing the royal treasury, the money deposited in the base Hamikdash. Second Maccabees stresses the merit of the martyrs, people who died al Kiddush Hashem, in bringing God to have mercy on his people. Indeed, many famous stories of martyrdom in the Gemara and Medrash, such as the famous story of Khan and her seven sons, can ultimately be traced back to Second Maccabees, and that is the first time in history where those events are recorded. In 2 Maccabees, Judah the Maccabee and his men pray to Hashem over and over for divine aid and receive it. Moreover, the book stresses that any Jew who suffered or who perished undeservedly in the time of the punishment will be resurrected to receive the recompense. Chiyas HaMesim. So in some, the entire orientation of 2 Maccabees is different from that of 1st Maccabees. The anonymous author of 2nd Maccabees, who, as he said, was abridging this word of the Jason of Sarin, looks at history from a different point of view. He stresses the holiness of the Beis Hamikdash. That's why he begins with an earlier failed attempt, Iliodorus, to desecrate the Beis Hamikdash and the miraculous way in which his evil designs were thwarted. So the question is, why was the base of Mikdash originally successfully defiled by Antiochus IV? The answer in the second back of these is the ancient conception of the sins of B'nai Yisrael. And you have, like you have in Sefer Shoftim, Sefer Malachim, you know, the following sequence. You have the sin of B'nai Yisrael, the punishment, the repentance of B'nai Yisrael, the arrogance of the Gentiles, the punishment of the Gentiles, and finally the restoration of Israel. Second Maccabee stresses that Jews who sinned, we call them as Yavnim, had already been guilty of many sinful acts. And if the priests were this sinful type, as one commentator said, you can imagine how terribly the common people behave. What caused the turn of events to allow Yehuda Maccabee to defeat the Seleucids? So 2nd Maccabee stresses the blood of the martyrs. Mises Machaper. The seven children tortured before the king is quoted in 2nd Maccabees as hoping that the wrath of the Almighty will come to the end. They have a beautiful, beautiful in the sense of it, 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 it's, you see the Kedusha, but it's also heart-rending to read. The youngest child, he hopes that the uh, he will die like his brothers, but Hashem will have mercy on B'nai Israel. The wrath, one verse in 2 Maccabees says, has justly fallen on our race. And indeed, another verse says, when the Lord's anger changed to mercy, Maccabees proved invincible to the Gentiles. How are we to understand the, the, the actions of Antiochus? So, it's really a twofold point. The author of Second Maccabees gives a twofold explanation. First, there's the standard theological explanation. Antiochus Epiphanes was nothing but a scourge. Scourge means a whip. He was a whip in the hands of heavenly justice. In that matter, 
he was just like Nebuchadnezzar of Babel. But in this letter that begins 2 Maccabees, we find another point. During the persecution and the crisis that came upon us in those years, since the time when Jason and his partisans revolted from the Holy Land, the rule of God, we prayed to the Lord and were answered. That's a very interesting uh, verse. There's not a single word in that letter about Antiochus to the Gentiles. Just like penance through prayer, the guilt through the, the defilement was the result of the doing of the Jews themselves. So Lai Spickerman points out, this is not just a statement of facts, this is a, we can call, a prophetic in interpretation of history. Sacred scripture does not understand history on its own, but in relation to God. So we already have this idea, we're about to develop further, that there was, there was the acts of the Jewish Hellenizers themselves who set into motion a train of events. Besides 1st and 2nd Maccabees and Josephus, who is clearly aware of both books, there's also, by the way, a very early medieval composition drawing heavily on the first book of Maccabees. That book is known as Regilus Antiochus, or Sefer B'nei Hashmonoi. This book was certainly composed much later. It's all derivative. After the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, uh, Menachem Tzvi Kadari, who published an edition of this book, dated to about 100 years after the Churban Habayis. So that would make it around 170 CE. And he based that upon the form of the Aramaic language used. Jonathan Goldstein, I mentioned him before, published the English translation of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, disputed this. Since Megillus Antiochus ends with a description of the practices to be observed on the Feast of Dedication, that is, on Hanukkah, in the same manner as Megillus Esther ends with a description of the laws of Purim, had Megillus Antiochus already been written at the time of the Tanoim and Amoraim, they certainly would have quoted it. But they did not. So the complete silence of earlier rabbinic sources make so early as they composition unlikely. Rather, an early medieval author probably used archaic language. From Sadagon, his dates are from 882 to 942, he quotes Megillus Antiochus, and the Halachas the Bahad, early in the 9th century, also knew of the book. But it's, again, it's not, may not be much earlier than around the year 800. But the author of Megillus Antiochus apparently did know passages from 1st and 2nd Maccabees and passages of Josephus pertaining to the story of Hanukkah, either by hearsay or by having a written text in front of him. So that's how we, who didn't read Greek, but our forefathers knew all about Matisyahu and those five children, it went from 1st Maccabees to Josephus to Megillus Antiochus and then back to us. And finally, another very popular medieval work that certainly drew on the Latin versions of 1st and 2nd Maccabees was Yosephon, not to be confused with Josephus, Yosephon was written in 953 CE. Now let us move on to the problem of Antiochus' persecution of the Jews and Professor Elias Bickerman's explanation of that fact. In the first chapter of the first book of Maccabees, we read as follows. And there came out of them, that is the previous Seleucid rulers, a wicked root. Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the illustrious, son, son of King Antiochus, who had been a hostage at Rome, and who reigned in the 137th year 
of the kingdom of the Greeks. That system of calendar starts after the death of, of Alexander the Great, approximately 312 BC, so that comes to 175 BC. Now, the historical problem posed by Antiochus' persecution of the Jews is as follows. The king conquered other nations as well, but he did not follow a policy of forced Hellenization of these other religions of his realm. So why should he want to turn the Jews, and only the Jews, into Greeks? So first of all, is this, is this statement true or not? So some of disputed this premise, but Professor Bickman says it's true. And he brought proofs from numismatics, study of ancient coins. This was indeed the case. The coins of all the other cities besides Judea that Antiochus IV conquered show the following. On one side, there is the king's head and the crown of rays. In the Phoenician case, it actually says King Antiochus. And that procedure was universally, uniformly rather, followed. The reverse of these coins, reserved for the individual cities, does not show any uniformity. And the coin of the Every place displays the original Avodazara of the divinity of these other towns that Antiochus had conquered. So that Adana and Nisbis we find Zeus and Nicophorus, at Alexander of Isos we saw these coins. You see a standing Zeus, Laodicea on the sea displays her Baal, identified with Poseidon, Sidon boasts her city goddess, Biblos issues her coins with the old fashioned image of the divinity with six wings. The kids are all the old, all the Avodazara of all the other nations on the office left. Just wanted the king, <laughs> his face on the other side of the coin. The Phoenician cities, for the first time since Alexander the Great, add inscriptions in the local language. So, what then could possibly have motivated Antiochus to replace in Har Sion the Jewish faith with only the Olympian Zeus of the, of the Greeks? Let them have simply a picture of Antiochus and then, and then just allow, allow the Jews to keep on doing what they were doing. So with, with the Judea, it just wasn't political conquering of the, of the area. It was an attempt to suppress the native religion. Now, the story Rankas wrote that the character of the Hellenistic kingdoms was determined by a process of syncretism. That means mixing everything among the polytheistic religions a process which these kingdoms carried through. The Jews, however, from Jews, remained exclusively monotheistic. That led to conflict. But Bickman said Rank's proposal helped, but it's still not sufficient. Because again, Antiochus didn't just have a place where he introduced Hellenistic gods, as terrible as that is, Jerusalem. Indeed, he did that even in 173, six years before profane the base to make gush. But he also prohibited the carrying out of any Jewish rites. He never prohibited the carrying out of rites in all the other polytheistic cities that he conquered. For example, in Babylon, Antiochus also set up a Greek polis with a theater and a sports stadium, but he didn't burn the... They felt, excuse me, Kodesh, we feel, of course, it's ridiculous, he didn't burn the native writings of the other polytheistic populations. Only in Yerushalayim were the Kisviyat Kodesh of us burned. Why? 
Why did Antiochus act differently towards the Jews than to any other nation? Now, if we take the view that Antiochus was only a whip in the hands of, of the Rabbanish alone, so of course we can always say, and in the broadest of uh, outlooks that's correct, that he was it was a whip in the hands of God, and it was Xerim Min HaShemayim. So, you could always claim that HaKadosh Baruch Hu just decided that Antiochus should think that way. It's analogous to the way that some of Farshim explained the Pesukah that God hardened Paro's heart. Okay, that's perhaps. So then he just got into Antiochus' brain and said, okay, I'm going to be different to the Jews and everyone else. And to be sure, in the final analysis, we believe everything ultimately derives from the will of the Rabbana Shalom. But the question remains, can we find Aldera Chateva, and the study of history is based upon the perspective of Aldera Chateva, a rational reason for Antiochus' behavior. Why did he not tolerate any of the traditions of the Jews in the Beis Hamikdash? Why was the circumcision of a Jew, even that of a Hellenized Jew, forbidden, but not of a Hellenized Arab? Why did Antiochus consider it a crime for the Jews to abstain from pork? Antiochus issued both commands and prohibitions. To be sure, we find elsewhere that the Greeks and Romans outlawed practices they found barbaric. The Punics were ordered to give up human sacrifice, just as the British in India outlawed the burning of widows. And Hadrian, as much as we abhor what he did, that he prohibited circumcision, he did it, we know, because he said it's barbaric. But he never, even Hayden, did not order the Jews to eat pork. But that's exactly what Antiochus did. So it flies in the face of how the manner in which other persecutions Jews were held, and it flies in the face of what, the way he persecuted everyone else. Why in the world did he have this pathological monomania to make the Jews eat from the cult? and eat from the chazer or the sacrifice. Bickerman points out that the decree of Antiochus towards the end of the year, 167, affected only the territory of the Jews, Jerusalem and Judea, the territory under the jurisdiction of the high priest of Zion. The Kohen Gadolim were like the local mayors of the, of the area. Since the persecution was limited to a certain area, one can conclude that it was instigated by the local authorities, the local Jewish authorities, and this is the beginning of the answer. The Hellenized Jewish authorities, for example, the Hellenized Jewish priest Menelaus, they were responsible. They egged Antiochus on. You have to help me get rid of of these old ancient Jews. That's the answer. Second thirteen, Second Maccabees <coughs> chapter thirteen, verse four reports how Menelaus was executed eventually after Judah Maccabee one, and writes, "For this man was to blame for all the trouble, since he had persuaded the king's father, that is the father of Antiochus the fifth, Antiochus the fourth, to compel the Jews to abandon their father's religion." In his view, it was the party of Menelaus, the extreme Hellenizers, the people we call the Messiavnin, who instigated Antiochus to persecute the Jews. 
First Maccabees chapter 1, verses 12 and 15 states this quite clearly. In those days they went out of Israel wicked men, and they persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathens that are round about us. For since we departed, departed from them, many evils have befallen us. And the words seemed good in their eyes, and some of the people determined to do this, and went to the king. And he gave them license to do as the ordinances of the heathens. And they built a place of exercise in Jerusalem, according to the laws of the nations. And they made themselves prepuces, which would make them appear that they were not circumcised, and departed from the holy covenant, and joined themselves to the heathens, and were, told to, were sold to do evil. Bickerman writes, for the reformers, the particular ways of the Jews, what we call Torah mitzvahs, was one of the sun, nothing but an expression of barbarism. And the life of all nations had a cultic framework. So to assimilate to the Greeks, they had to venerate Greek God, participate in the new gymnastics exercises, etc. So that's the answer to the problem, according to Professor Elias Sikkerman. Al-Derech HaTeba, Antiochus acted differently in Judea, because Daphne in Judea, there were the extreme Jewish Hellenizers, the party that instigated him to wipe out any trace of particularity among the Jews. Bickman writes as follows, the Reformers under Epiphanes remind us of the Jewish reform movement during the 40s of the 19th century, when men such as Geiger and Einhorn proposed the abolition of the dietary laws, declared circumcision not to be binding. They too were fascinated by the non-Jewish world around them and were impressed by the hypotheses of Protestant scholarship concerning the origin of the Pentateuch. Bickerman concludes his book, The God of the Maccabees, with the following. It was not a national fight, but a struggle within the nation itself. A religious war between two groups of Jews, between the polytheists, who sacrificed God in order to save their people through assimilation to the surrounding world, and the monotheists, who were ready to give up their lives, and that of the people, in order to preserve the law of Moses. The first party relied upon the secular power of the Seleucids. On the side of the Maccabees, however, fought God. Bickerman continues, Had they been defeated, that is the Hashmanoyim, the light of monotheism would have been extinguished too. An external oppression could not have led to its destruction, since a fraction of the dispersed people would always have maintained the true faith. Would have been different, however, if the Judeans themselves had lapsed into polytheism, if the pilgrims to Zion had encountered within the walls of the temple sacred prostitutes who would have led the stranger to the altar. The martyrs, through their blood, the fighter of God through their swords, have saved the motto of Judaism, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Let me just add something here, parenthetical remark. You know, the Rambam writes, point to say today, we say, Hashem Echad, it just doesn't mean one God is supposed to fight God, but the one God that is, is, is completely one, and is not divided into parts, like other people will uh, think about today. But, of course, there's the more basic point that it's one God and not many gods. And that's the fight against the syncretism of the Hellenizers. While the figures of Matisionis' son survive only in the history books, Jews today celebrate Hanukkah as a festival in memory of the rededication of the temple and the miracle of inexhaustible oil. The deeds of the Maccabees are worth remembering forever because they, 
resulted in the survival of monotheism. Through the blood witness of the martyrs, through the service of the rededicated temple, the one truth was saved which mankind during its wanderings of a thousand years has found unchangeable and eternal. Man has been deceived and disappointed by innumerable alleged truths, but never by the one truth of the uniqueness of God. Thus, those men and women and children who sacrificed their lives during the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes in order to remain faithful to the Eternal One, remain forever and for all people examples of true heroism. Akan Elias Vickerman. So now, for the brief remainder of the lecture, I want to discuss a scholarly opinion that rejected uh, Professor Vickerman's thesis, and then something in Professor Vickerman's life that perhaps made him more receptive to this idea. I mean, I find, I find it very attractive to understand that it was ultimately the Misyavnim that were, how shall I say, responsible for the difference in Antiochus' behavior. One of Professor Bickerman's students was Jonathan Goldson, who, as I mentioned, translated 1st and 2nd Maccabees for the Anchor Bible Commentary. Although he dedicated his translation of 2nd Maccabees to Professor Bickerman, he dissented from his teacher's explanation of why Antiochus only persecuted the Jews, and why he only imposed a foreign cult upon them, and prohibited them from worshipping the Jewish God, prohibited them from performing any Jewish rituals, Punitive actions which Antiochus did not impose on any other nations that he conquered. As opposed to Bikamin, who argued that the Misyavnim, led by such men as the wicked high priest Menelaus, were the ones who encouraged Antiochus to suppress the Jewish religion, Goldstein argued that the decrees came from Antiochus himself. The answer or the problem of uniqueness lies in the fact that Antiochus as a boy spent time in Rome. He was hence an admirer of the Romans and their methods. And the Romans did suppress cults that they deemed worthy of obliteration. You saw how the Romans dealt with the Bacchanalia, a, a sect that they viewed as subversive. The eyes Antiochus, who wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a philosopher, the Jews who had absorbed, and Antiochus had absorbed the Roman mindset, the Jews were another subversive set like the Bacchanalia. So he employed the Roman method of attempting to wipe out the cult totally and imposed a foreign cult about them in Judea as well. Moreover, there's evidence that Antiochus had conflicts with various Greek philosophers and indeed may have heard as a youth Roman Cato's condemnation of philosophy. And when he could suppress members of various sects, he indeed did so. Thus, his attempted suppression of Judaism was totally in character for a king who adopted Roman methods of suppression when he felt that he could. He may look at Judaism as another example of philosophy that was worthy of extirpation. And thus, argued Goldstein, there's no need to claim, as Bickerman did, that Antiochus acted only after the prompting of Jewish counselors. In any event, this, the fact that the suppression is, was unique is not a fatal objection. Unique phenomena do happen in history. Antiochus was a unique Hellenistic king, not least in his efforts to copy Roman efforts, Roman methods, even when those methods were grossly inappropriate. Of course, according to Bickerman's interpretation, I mentioned before that it was the Messiavnim who egged Antiochus on. Antiochus' events 
no longer constituted an event unparalleled in human history. It was the Jewish Hellenizers that instigated everything, and that was the answer to the problem. Now, some pagan sources, such as Tacitus and Theodorus, ascribe the decrees against the Jews to Antiochus himself. Goldstein can look at that as proof for his presentation. But Bickerman, on the other hand, pointed to the tried and true notion that generally in history, a monarch is praised or blamed for a decision, whether it's his own idea or that of the advisors or the instigators who egg him on. For example, let's take the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, 1492. Does the blame go to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, the various parties, the church, etc., that urged the king and queen to expel the Jews? Whereas Goldstein would point to Jewish sources that point to the evil counsel given to the monarchs, as opposed to the sources regarding Antioch, who specifically was blamed, Bickerman would dispute that and point to sources that put the blame squarely on the Catholic monarchs themselves, even though in reality, for sure, they were instigated by others. By the same token, the sources such as Tacitus that described the attempted suppression of Judaism to Antiochus did so out of a convention. The king is, uh, he's, he's responsible for everything. All actions go back to the king, in spite of the fact that, as Bickerman argued, wasn't the party of the Jewish Hellenizers, such as Menelaus, who instigated the entire suppression. Just give another analogy, if you remember, like 30 years ago, and obviously it was not as uh, terrible as any of these cases, remember it was George H. W. Bush, 41, he was attacking Israel, wanted to withhold aid, so the whole question was, people were discriminating it, is it Bush, or no, it's really Baker. Baker his, was his Secretary of State, and he was the one, Bush was the good guy, but Baker's the bad guy. Other people said, no, Bush is the bad guy. This is a perennial historical issue, which is precisely the issue going back here. Is it the king, or was it the instigators, in this case, the Jewish instigators, never of Antiochus? Okay, so Bickerman has his ways to defend uh, himself against uh, that of Goldstein thesis. Finally, why was Professor Bickerman almost unique in his understanding of this matter? So there's an amazing book I have here by someone named Albert Baumgarten, who wrote a biography of Elias Bickerman. It's called Elias Bickerman as a Star in the Jews. So first he gives some very interesting explanations why there was a generally negative response to Bickerman's interpretation. But I will tell you, I just recently, as I was preparing this lecture, uh, someone told me that more and more historians are now agreeing with Bickerman. But certainly when his book first came out, you know, putting much of the onus on the Misyavdim, there was a lot of pushback. He says as follows. First, Bickerman cast the Jewish reformers in a role that made many 20th century Jews uncomfortable. After years of viewing Antiochus IV as the wicked king, were modern Jews ready to conclude that Antiochus IV did nothing more than execute a program conceived by ancient Hellenizing Jews? Didn't some minimum remnant of Jewish loyalty to fellow Jews, even the villains, make Bickerman's conclusions implausible, unpalatable, and unacceptable? Bick Baumgarten writes the great Italian Jewish historian Arnaldo Monigliano originally agreed with Bickerman, but then changed his mind. And Baumgarten said that Jewish sensitivity of this sort may have 
played a role as a change of opinion. Moreover, it would be surprising if Mumikulyana was the only Jew of his time to respond this way to Bickerman's ideas. The reason is emotional and ideological. You don't want to blame Jews, you know. But secondly, from a purely academic standpoint, the proofs that Bickerman argued, you know, from the book of Maccabees and Josephus, they were not contemporaneous with the events, even if these primary texts support his point. As you mentioned, the, the actions of the Maccabees 167 to 164 BCE. First Maccabees was written around 100 BCE. Um, perhaps a little earlier. John Herkinus ended his reign in 104 BCE. That's still 60 years after the events. So, and second Maccabees is even later. So, Bickerman, for his part, was a firm believer that ideology drives events. He admired Tocqueville's analysis of the French Revolution. Ideology made the rebels attack the state religion. So too here, he understood the extreme Hellenizers as making the state religion, which was originally for us Torah mitzvot, as the prime <coughs> target of their uh, revolt, perforce getting into an alliance with Antiochus, and indeed persuading him to, chas shalom, destroy the Jewish religion. Menelaus and, part, and his party advocated a radical cosmopolitanism that the Hellenistic world then advocated. Other historians suggested that the Hellenists were not motivated by ideological concerns, but by political ones. Now, and this is the, yes, there is a stunt, as they say. Baumgarten suggested that Bickerman's position which, at least in the opinion of the consensus of historians, seems not to be strongly founded, was itself motivated by ideological commitments that motivated him. Now, that doesn't mean he was incorrect in his stress on the misyavnen, but it does mean that one can look into his life and its vicissitudes to try and understand why Dafka, he understood that it was the Jewish Hellenizers that persuaded Antiochus to persecute the Jews. Bickerman's book, The God of the Maccabees, was originally written in 1937. I didn't have to tell you what was going on in 1937. The book was written in German, so it was practically a call to action. Modern German Jews, we're in trouble. We have to prepare God fit to become martyrs for Judaism, but the, the answer is not Shalom to go to the other side. Concludes with a citation, many men learn from them, that is the Maccabees, to die for the truth. But Baumgarten writes that the context for Bickerman's interpretation came not only from the Nazi era, but from other aspects of his experience. Bickerman spent the 1920s as a refugee from Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in Weimar, Germany. Now, he was not Orthodox, but by 1920s, even a lot of the non-Orthodox in Germany were calling the extreme reformers Protestants and Jewish guard. They complained about the reformers who wanted to replace Hebrew with German, and they rediscovered the importance of doing mitzvot. Even before the Nazis came to power, a lot of Jews in Germany by the 1920s 
realize that anti-Semitism is here to stay, no matter how many of the commandments of the Jews they would reject. Thus, Bickerman's comparison of extreme Hellenizers with the 19th century reform figures such as Geiger can easily be understood as gaining impetus from a stay in Germany in the 1920s. Remarkably, Albert Bongarn points out that a famous Orthodox Jewish figure of the 19th century Germany advocates the same position that Bickerman did almost a century earlier, before Bickerman. I speak of Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. He also explained that it was the reformers, the Misyavnim, who provoked Antiochus' decrees. Now, there's no evidence that uh, Elias Bickerman knew this passage from Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, but like Hirsch, Bickerman, living in his place and time, saw the ideological motivation for such an explanation. And I will tell you, when I was preparing this lecture, and I uh, told my wife for this, she said, yeah, she heard the same thing in uh, Beis Yaakov 30 years, uh, 30 years ago, that it was the Misyavmin that egged Antiochus on. So here's something very interesting. Um, of course, you know, Hirsch did not, did not have like a historical point of view, you know, the way Bickerman did, but here, a, a, a historical analysis leads to the same conclusion that Rav Shimshon Paul Hirsch had. Remarkable. Moreover, Albert Baumgarten continues, many Russian Jewish emigres fleeing the totally secular Bolsheviks experience a greater appreciation of the religious traditions of Judaism, even if they were not personally religious. Apparently, Bickerman at least sometimes gave stucca to some Jewish causes. How do we know this? Because in Baumgarten's research for his biography of Bickerman, again, Bickerman was not, was, was not uh, formally from at all, but he saw the typescript for one of his other books, The Jews for the Greek Age. He wrote on the backs of letters from Beis Yaakov in uh, Brooklyn, Shivatari Vadas, the Shari Tzedek Hospital, so he's, <laughs> he was giving stucca the whole time, you know, even if he wasn't, uh, you know, Shomu Shabbos the way we are. Biko Cholom Hospital, Al-Tidom, that's for Russian Jews, he came from Russia, and Notzer Chesed, easing the burden of poor religious families in Israel. Presumably, some of them were thank you notes. Baumgarten okay. points out that as a Russian Jewish emigre, Bickerman also was certainly aware of the Russian government's attempt in the 19th century to reform Jewish life in Russia. In this, the masculine attempted to oppose their will on the majority of Russian Jews who were devoutly thrown. In 1844, the government abandoned, or rather I should say abolished the kahal. Jewish life was destabilized, and existing patterns of authority were disrupted. Jews started smoking Shabbos, eating non-kosher food, and shaving their beards. Some students in the official government-sponsored Vilna Rabbinical Seminary spent Tishabov eating and drinking. Terrible. These were the extreme reformers, and it's appealing to suggest that besides what was going on in the Nazis, besides the 1920s realization that uh, extreme reform is not solving anti-Semitism, besides comparison to Geiger, the early uh, reformers, the people who were in Russia acting this way also served to Bickerman as an analogy for understanding what was going on with the extreme Hellenizers. Baumgarten brings a specific case of a Russian Jew called M.O. Gershenson, 
who had urged Jews to abandon Judaism entirely. Bickerman was also an avowed anti-communist in his entire life and was fiercely opposed to the Jewish Bolshevists, those people who naively thought that the answer to the Jewish problem was to build the Soviet Union, a workers' paradise in which all vestiges of Judaism would disappear. Bickerman followed his father in this regard, who was also a fierce anti-communist and could easily have developed his account of the Hellenizers as the instigators of Antiochus' persecution with the Jewish communists in mind. The best argument of Bandgarn regarding the ideological base of Vickerman's understanding, in my view, lies in a slip, I would call it a Freudian slip, in a popular book of his, sim titled simply The Maccabees. He writes that the desire of Jason and Menelaus, the extreme Jewish Hellenizers, was to remove everything which spacked of separation, the ghetto, Sabbath observance, beards, circumcision, and the namelessness of God. Now, Sabbath observance, we understand. Circumcision, the namelessness of God, are all mentioned in the first and second Maccabees and the Josephus. But beards? That's not true. In the, the time of the Maccabees, in the Greek world, all males, Jews as well as non-Jews, had beards in the Hellenistic era. So what, is, what was he talking about with beards? What's the answer? The answer is, in 19th century Russia, governmental regulations included decrees against beards and payers, and the extreme Jewish people like uh, you know, Lillingville, all these people that tried to destroy Jewish observance in Russia, followed that. This uncharacteristic slip of the pen can serve as vindication and confirmation of Baumgarten's point, that Elias Bickerman thought in modern terms when he looked back into history and proposed his explanation of the persecution of Antiochus. Earlier I quoted the conclusion of Elias Beckerman's book, The God of the Maccabees. I personally found it very inspiring, so I'll end this lecture by quoting it again. Had they been defeated, that is the Maccabees, the light of monotheism would have been extinguished too. An external oppression could not have led to its destruction, since a fraction of the dispersed people would always have maintained the true faith. It would have been different, however, if the Judeans themselves had lapsed into polytheism, if the pilgrims of Zion had encountered within the walls of the temple sacred prostitutes, who would have led the stranger to the altar. The martyrs through their blood, the fighters of God through their swords, have saved the motto of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. While the figures of Matisyon and his son survive only in the history books, Jews today celebrate Hanukkah as a festival in memory of the rededication of the temple and the miracle of inexhaustible oil. The deeds of the Maccabees are worth remembering forever because they resulted in the survival of monotheism. Through the blood witness of the martyrs, through the service of the rededicated temple, the one truth was saved, which for mankind during its wanderings of a thousand years it has found unchangeable and eternal. Man has been deceived and disappointed by innumerable alleged truths, but never by the one truth of the uniqueness of God. Thus, those men and women and children who sacrificed their lives during the persecution under Epiphanes, in order to remain faithful to the Eternal One, remain forever and for all people, example of true heroism. Okay, thank you very much. I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, this was the last lecture on the secular year. We're going to start again. Rabbi 
Dr. David Horace will come back again on January 1st, New Year's Day at 9.15. The topic will be Rambam and I'm Thank you all for coming. We'll venture about a minute or two. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm covering all the uh, I'm getting a big thing. 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 I'm getting a big thing.